Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 6? For those of you who are regulars here at Calvary, you know we have been working our way through the book of Joshua for uh, several months. And this morning, we come to the second main section of the book. The book is really divided into three main sections. The first five chapters we have entitled it, uh, Entering the Land, as they prepared to enter the land of promise. Chapter 6 through 21 form the second major section, which we have entitled Conquering the Land. And then chapters 22 to 24 are the third and last major section, which we've entitled Keeping the Land. And so this morning we find ourselves moving into that second main section, Conquering the Land. This is where now they begin to fight the battles of the Lord in defeating the Canaanites and driving them from the land that God had given to his people Israel. Now, let me just say this before we uh, move forward this morning. Many Christians have trouble with the wars fought by God's people in the Bible. In fact, it stumbles a lot of them because they don't understand why God even allows wars. I mean, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. God is a God of love. So if that's true, then why did he not only allow war, but actually encouraged it in the pages of Scripture? And for some people, this is a real stumbling block. But we have to understand that God did not want war and death to be a part of life on the earth. All of this came about through man's rebellion against God and through his rebellion as sin entered into his heart. Well, he began to desire to oppress his fellow man, which made war a necessity, which God is not against now using to bring about his purposes in defeating evil. We're not glorifying war. We're not saying war is... Uh, is a glorious thing in and of itself. It's a necessary thing. Because when you have evil people that want to oppress others and bring them into tyranny, you're going to have to have war to suppress that evil. And so we thank God for those in our country who have fought so hard that we might enjoy freedom. But you know what? This is also a theme throughout God's Word. Author and one-time pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, Warren Worsby, said, and I quote, It's unfortunate that many of the militant songs of the church have been removed from some hymnals, apparently because the idea of warfare disturbs people and seems to contradict the words and works of Jesus Christ. But these zealous editors with scissors seem to have forgotten that the main theme of the Bible is God's holy warfare against Satan and sin. In Genesis 3, verse 15, God declared war on Satan. And one day he will declare the victory when Jesus comes as conqueror to establish his kingdom upon the earth. If you eliminate the militant side of the Christian faith, then you must abandon the cross, for it was on the cross that Jesus won the victory over sin and Satan. So folks, it's not that we revel in war. War is not a glorious thing in and of itself for the sake of war. It just is a necessary thing, and we look forward to the day when, as the Bible prophesies, when Jesus returns, people are going to take their swords and their spears and turn them into plowshares and pruning hooks, and every man will sit under his own fig tree and not be afraid, and they will study and learn war no more. And we look forward to that day. But until that time, we fight wars. And the same was true with God's people in the Old Testament. Now, this morning... In our study, we're going to see the children of Israel fight their first and greatest battle against the enemy in the land of Canaan, which is the Battle of Jericho. 
I say their greatest battle because Jericho was the strongest stronghold of the enemy in the land of promise. It rose from the plains of Jericho and stood before the army of Israel as an impregnable, invincible fortress. Even as there may be something in your life that stands in front of you, remember now how that Paul the Apostle said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning. In other words, these historical accounts uh, really happened, but God is using them to teach us principles by which we can apply into our lives as Christians that we can live for God and fight the battles of the Lord on a spiritual level today. And so even as Israel stood before this massive fortress called Jericho, there are things that stand in our lives that rise up and stand in front of us. We'll call them our own personal Jerichos. And they take many different forms. They could be the Jericho of drugs or alcohol, the Jericho of pornography, the Jericho of materialism or anger or pride or grief. These are enemy strongholds. And I'll tell you what, they often seem stronger and more unbeatable than anything else you'll face in your Christian life. A fortress that stands in the way of you in victory and is your greatest challenge, your biggest obstacle, that tries to stop you from taking hold of and possessing your own spiritual promised land, which is all the promises that God has given to you in Christ. Those are ours, but we have to lay claim to them. We have to actually fight against the devil to reap them or actually to apply them to our lives. And I'll tell you this, as we face these Jerichos, all right, whatever they are, whatever form they take, as you look at that thing in your life, staring you in the face, this, this thing that just overshadows you, all right, the tendency, the natural inclination is to want to sidestep it, to ignore it, to kind of go around it, and to do battles against the lesser enemies in your life, the weaker, less fortified areas of the flesh. But see, God didn't let Israel do that, and neither will he let you do that. See, here's the deal. God led them into the promised land, and the first enemy he leads them to fight against was the toughest kid on the block. Now, look it. From a human standpoint, we think, Lord, why do I have to take on the toughest kid in the block first? Can't I beat up on some of the little guys? I mean, why do we have to go against the strongest the enemy? Can't we kind of sidestep it, leave them for last? You know, we'll, we'll get to them eventually. We want to just fight with some of the smaller guys, you know, some of the smaller towns. Uh, let us get our feet wet a little bit. See, but what happens with that mentality is this. We tell ourselves someday we're going we're gonna to do battle against that big area of sin in our life, that bad habit that we know is there, but we don't want to deal with really. And the problem is we let those things go often for years, and we don't deal with them. See, God wants us to have total victory in every area of our life and has provided for it through the victory that Jesus Christ won for us on the cross. And he's going to force us to encounter our own personal Jerichos. And sometimes it's one thing. I mean, not that we don't have other things, but sometimes it's that one area. That just this one area of your flesh or this one enemy, this, this one obstacle that just seems to overshadow all the other areas of weakness in your life. An enemy so strong that you don't think you're going to ever have victory over it. And so, again, the tendency is to sidestep it, to ignore it, to pretend it isn't there. But you know it's there. And God knows it's there, and God's, God wants you to deal with it in his strength. And God told Israel in Numbers 33, verse 55, if you don't drive out the inhabitants, if you don't defeat every enemy that I bring across your path, I'm not going to defeat them. I'll leave them there. And they're going to be thorns in your side. They're going to be a constant source of irritation, a constant source of anxiety. 
And I believe that God is placed here for our learning in this passage, chapter 6, some simple and yet powerful principles in the way that he had Israel fight the battle of Jericho, principles that I believe that we can learn from and apply into our own personal battles with the enemies we face, and we've already talked about this, we face three very powerful enemies in the Christian life. Satan, the world, the world system which he controls, and our flesh or our fallen nature which is in us. Now, any one of these enemies we're no match for. But together, and that's how they work, the devil uses the world and the flesh against us, so together they become a very powerful Jericho in our lives. And we need to allow God to bring that down. Look, God wants us to to know victory. God wants us to know the power of the Spirit in our lives. God wants not only to set us free from our bondages, He wants to use us to set others free by preaching the gospel. You know, look at These folks were taking territory from the enemy for the glory of God, right? What was their territory? It was land, right? We're not fighting for land. We're not fighting for soil. We're fighting for souls. That's what we're trying to fight and conquer. We are out there trying to win souls to Jesus Christ. People that the enemy has taken captive, as the Bible says. We need to get out there. And the devil is not happy about us wanting to see these people set free. He's going to attack us. And it's going to take a lot of different forms. And he knows exactly your weaknesses. He knows every area of your life that's a a problem, every sin, every bad habit. And he's helped to just reinforce all that, to build those strongholds up in your life so you think you're never going to have victory. And you know what? These things can't be ignored. They can't be sidestepped. They must be confronted and defeated, and the sooner the better. I think that's one of the reasons why God led them to fight their greatest challenge first. Because, again, God doesn't want us sidestepping these things. So often we think if we just ignore that big thing and just fight against all these other little bad habits, uh, well, I'm having victory. It's okay because I'm I'm not going to ever be perfect. So you know what? If I ignore a couple of battles along the way, if I don't fight against every enemy in my life, it's okay because I'm, I'm over here and I'm having victory in these areas. And that's great. But when you make a treaty with the flesh, when you say, you know what, you're off limits to me. You're always going to be here. You're a stronghold I'll never defeat. You know what you do? You give the enemy a foothold in your life to take back other territories that you've conquered. And we're going to see this clearly stated later on in the book as Israel began to get tired of warfare and began to make treaties with the Canaanites. And what problems that brought into their lives. Now, as we read this story, three principles stand out in the process of victory that become, I think, the keys to their victory over Jericho. Three principles that I think that we can apply into our lives and become the key to our victory against the enemies or the strongholds that we may face. And there are simply in chapter 6, three things. The strategy God gave them, the silence they walked in, and the surrender they obeyed with. So you have the strategy, the silence, and the surrender. Three things that we want to look at. We'll look at the first two this week. Next week we'll finish up. First of all, let's look at the strategy that God gave them for fighting the battle of Jericho. We read in verse 1, Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And the seven priests shall bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. 
It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Of course, what immediately strikes us here is the utter foolishness of the strategy that God gave them in fighting this battle. I mean, no general in his right mind, when sent out by the commanding officer to go scope out a city, how the best way we can go against it and conquer it, no general in his right mind is going to come back and go, yeah, I scoped out that city. It's pretty strong, really fortified. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to march around it once a day for six days. Seventh day, we're going to march around seven times. Then we're going to all shout, and the walls are going to fall down. All right, take him out, okay? <laughs> He's lost his mind. But see, that's the response I believe God was looking for. Not only from Israel back then, but from us today as we read this account. See, it's what the Bible calls the foolishness of God. The foolishness of God. Which doesn't mean that God is foolish, of course. It just simply means that sometimes God will use foolish-sounding tactics and strategies to bring about his purposes. Things that seem foolish to us, maybe, that are designed by God to humble us, that we not put confidence in us, because the Bible says that God desires to use the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the strong. He doesn't want any flesh, us, glorying in his presence. Oh, God, didn't we do a great work here? Didn't we win the battle, Lord? No, it wasn't we. It was me, God is saying. And sometimes you have to be reminded of that because as God begins to use us as Christians, sometimes we get the impression that it does depend on me and how blessed God is to have me on his team. Because, Lord, you know, I mean, without me, look at the work that I'm doing here. See, that's the quickest way to get put in the shelf. When you begin to think that whatever God is doing through you, it's because of you and not because of his power. That's why once in a while God will lead his people into doing some very foolish things in his name because he wants to show us he doesn't need any of us. Every once in a while, he wants to do something really out there that goes against everything that we would think from a logical standpoint to show us he doesn't need any of us. You know, I just came back from my pastor's conference out in the West Coast. And one of the pastors who I happen to know uh, pretty well I told a true story about a guy that went to his church. All right? You're going to think this is nuts, but listen to the story. He had a guy in his church that had just newly gotten saved. And this guy, young Christian now, brand new, is driving down uh, in a neighborhood in Southern California. It was a pretty affluent uh, area. Big houses, you know, long driveways, big mailboxes lining the street. And as he's driving down the street, he feels the Lord is saying to him, stop the car, stick your head in the mailbox, and yell, Jesus loves you. Now, as a new believer, he's thinking, I rebuke you, Satan. There's no way the Lord's telling me to do that. I mean, that's just ridiculous, right? And so he keeps driving, you know. And yet the, the Lord kept speaking to him so powerfully, he felt such an impression to do this ridiculous thing. He finally pulls over, looks around, gets out of the car, runs over to a mailbox, opens it up, sticks his head inside, and goes, Jesus loves you. Well, it was a large mailbox, and it was like acting like an amplifier. And the whole neighborhood heard, Jesus loves you, echoing. Well, he quickly turns around and starts going for his car and, you know, starting to get in his car when a guy comes running out of the house down the driveway. 
and says to him, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you just yell, Jesus loves you? And the guy says, Christian said, man, I'm sorry. You know, I'm a new Christian. I really thought the Lord wanted me to do that. I apologize. He said, I'm leaving. Don't, you don't have to call the police. I'm going. No, no, you don't understand. A few seconds ago, I was standing on a chair with a noose around my neck. And I said, God, if you're real, you better tell me right now. And suddenly I heard, Jesus loves you. Well, needless to say, he had a chance to witness to this guy. He got saved and started coming to this pastor's church that I know. What am I saying? I'm saying that every goofy thought that pops into your head, act on it because it's God. Please don't do that. Unless you really know it's the Lord. But what I'm saying is, sometimes God will lead you to do something very unorthodox. Very foolish. Didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1.25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Men would never come up with a strategy like that to save somebody. Stick your head in a mailbox and yell, Jesus loves you. And men would never come up with a strategy that causes you to march around a stronghold six times, every, one time every day for six days, and then the seventh day, seven times shout and the walls fall down. See, God used something very unconventional in that situation, and he's using ver- something very unconventional in this situation. Why? Because I believe that God wanted to take this initial battle against the strongest the enemy had to offer right out of the realm of human logic and ability. I believe the Lord wanted to give them victory in a way that they would never be able to take credit for, never be able to boast in as if it was their strength and ingenuity that defeated Jericho. God wanted them to understand right at the outset, first battle. He didn't need them to defeat Jericho or any other stronghold of the enemy. In fact, he didn't even need them to show up. He wanted them to know the battle belongs to the Lord. That was the very principle he started to teach them at the end of chapter 5, right? When the Lord Jesus Christ shows up in a pre-incarnate appearance, and says, I'm taking over. I'm the captain of the Lord's host. I have now come to lead this battle. See, we have to understand that. The battle belongs to the Lord. And God wanted to teach them and all of us that he was fully capable of defeating the enemy all by himself so that their confidence and faith would be in him and not in themselves for the remaining conquest of Canaan. Look, don't stumble over the strategy here. Don't focus on the strategy. If you do, you're missing the point. The strategy was secondary. What was primary was their faith in God. Would they trust God to give them victory? See, we need to understand that after the battle of Jericho, as God led them into other battles in the future, uh, we don't see him anymore giving them bizarre, ridiculous strategies like this and fighting the other battles that they faced. In fact, as we go through the story uh, in chapters 6 and then beyond, as they're fighting these various enemies, We see many times God gave them some very sound military strategies for future battles that they would face. I mean, look, sound logic, good judgment, common sense, those are the norm, aren't they? Those are the norm that we are to apply when we face problems in our lives. God gave us a brain and gave us the ability to exercise good judgment and common sense. And he expects us to apply that to the problems and situations of our lives. But there are some times... And I'm not saying it happens every day. But there are times when God will ask us to set aside human logic, to set aside common sense, to take a step in faith. Maybe like putting your head in the mailbox and shouting, Jesus loves you. I don't know. But there are times when God will lead us to do things that seem very unorthodox. And I'm sure in this room we have numerous people that can say, yeah, that kind of happened to me. And here's what God told me to do. And here's how it turned out. See, the issue wasn't the strategy that God gave them in fighting this battle. 
The strategy was unimportant. God could have vaporized Jericho without them breaking camp. The issue was were they going to trust God to do what he had promised them he was going to do, which was give them victory. And at this point, we want to chime up and say, yeah, I believe that. I believe that with my help. No, you're missing the point. See, you're missing the point. I believe God was telling the army of Israel back then, I want to show you from this initial battle against the strongest the enemy has to throw at you, I don't need you at all. The issue is not your resolve. It's not your human effort. It's not your resourcefulness. The issue is my power and you having faith in my power. And I believe that's the same message God is wanting to teach us today. You know, today the church is all about methodologies. The church is all about some new creative little twist on getting the gospel to people. Look, I'm not against creativity. I'm not against trying to use technology and other things to reach this generation for for Christ. I'm all for it. But if we put our faith in the technology or in the methodology, we're missing the point. And no wonder God isn't blessing all these methodologies. Some of them are good. They're not evil. But we're putting all of our faith in the wisdom of man and not in the power of the Spirit. It's like Tozer said. You remove the Holy Spirit's power from what the early church did, 90% of what they did would have come to a stop. You remove the Spirit's power from today's church, 10% of what is being done would come to a stop. Because we're putting too much emphasis on human resourcefulness and wisdom and degrees and every other thing, methodologies. And no wonder the church is ineffective for the most part in reaching this generation for Christ. And I believe the Lord would say to us if he was here personally that your victories and your success in the Christian life are not, listen, are not going to be the result of how resourceful you are or how hard you work or how much human wisdom you have, but in how much you trust and obey me. I can only imagine if Joshua had not gone to the Lord and asked him, Lord, what do you want to do here? But instead, called the the, uh, heads of the 12 tribes together for a war council kind of a thing. And said, okay, guys, look, it's a pretty big enemy out there. You see it standing there. You know, it's a pretty fortified city. Uh, what do you recommend we do to uh, go against this city and take it? I, I'm sure one of the generals, one of, of uh, Joshua's generals would have said, well, let's surround the city, cut off the supply routes, and starve them to death. It's going to take a while, but it'll work. Another might have said, you know what, that'll take too long. Let's build some ladders. Let's, storm, let's try to, to storm the walls, you know. Sure. We're going to lose a lot of guys. We'll give the guys in the front line some, some heavy armor and stuff. But you know what? It's a lot quicker. Another guy would say, man, that's, that's too messy. That's too, many, too much loss of life there. Let's build battering rams, you know, and let's pound the, the doors down. You know, take it a little longer, less, less loss of life, more conservative approach. Let's do it that way. Another might have said, look, I got the perfect solution. We dig under the wall, right? And then one night we slip under the wall, surprise attack, we take the city that way. Hey, none of those are bad strategies. I mean, each of them would have leaned on their own human understanding and wisdom, as we so often do when confronting a sizable problem, don't we? And they would have all come up with good-sounding strategies that, from a human standpoint, made a lot of sense. But to Joshua's credit, as Paul the Apostle said, he did not confer with flesh and blood, but went directly to the Lord, right? And asked God what God wanted to do. Hey, look, the Bible says there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. It's not wrong to go to brothers or sisters in Christ or pastors or leaders and say, look, i got a problem. Can I get some input from you? Nothing wrong with that. But you know what? First go to God and see what he might want to do. How does he want to deal with it? And if he doesn't give you some unorthodox strategy, then use common sense and good judgment. Get input from people. But don't run to man first. Go to God first to see what he might have in mind. 
Joshua did that. He didn't rely on the wisdom of man, but instead went straight to the Lord for direction. And in so doing, he left us a powerful example to follow. Even as it says in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Very important words. I, I, I just, you know, if God hadn't told Joshua what he wanted to do, and God said to Joshua, look, why don't you try to guess? Why don't you get the guys together, you know, your general, just kind of, I want to just see what you come up with. And, of course, they would have come up with these strategies we just mentioned. How far off they would have been, right, from what God wanted to do. Think about that. How Good strategies, logical, common sense. How far off they would have been from God's plan. How far off are we oftentimes when we don't seek the mind of God? We just sit down, figure it out. Okay, here we go. And God might want to do something completely different that you would never have thought of. If you'll just seek him, he'll tell you about it. And I know some are think, sitting there thinking about this time. Yes, but why did the strategy he gave to them have to be so foolish? I think it was because God didn't want it to appeal to their macho pride as soldiers. But in fact, he actually designed it to humiliate the warrior in them. You see, he wanted to force them to walk humbly with their God. Because humility and faith are the cornerstones of the victorious life. Humility and faith are the cornerstones of the victorious life. Folks, when facing the Jerichos in our lives, we can either lean on our own human understanding and logic, make our plans, and then pray that God will bless them, or we can pray and wait for God to give us guidance and then follow what he has said, regardless of how illogical or unorthodox it seems. And that's wise. You know why? Because in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, My ways are not your ways, neither are your thoughts my thoughts, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we have to really seek the mind of God. That's wise, that we seek him for guidance in every situation, especially when we're talking about the big issues that we face. And yet, unfortunately, we talk about God's ways, right? My ways are not your ways, all right? We talk about God's ways. Unfortunately, that is so often the problem. See, the ways of God produce in me the wise of man. I'll say it again. The ways of God produce in me the wise of man. God tells me to do something. I have this burning desire in my heart to know why. Well, why do you want me to do that, Lord? That doesn't make much sense. Look at I figured out a strategy here. Let me give it to you, Lord. This is much better than yours. Let me show you what, share with you what I got. The ways of God often produce in us the wise of man. But folks, it's not for us to understand all the wise of God. It's only important for us to obey the ways of God. And by that I mean the paths that he leads us in as I seek to walk with him in my daily life. So, first of all, the strategy. And again, I hope I've shown you the strategy was immaterial. The strategy was unimportant. The strategy was just designed to bring forth from them faith and humility, which are the cornerstones of victory, right? Secondly, though, the second principle I see here that strikes me as I read this account is the silence that God commanded the people to walk in. Verse 6, Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. And so it was when Joshua had spoken to the people 
that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark advanced and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout. Then you shall shout. Uh, so he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. Now, I want you to just kind of put yourself in their place for a minute. I don't really read here that Joshua told them the whole battle strategy. You know, once around the city, six days, seventh day, seven times. I, I, I'm not so sure he actually told them that day one. I think he gave them their marching orders every day just for that day. So here you're a soldier now, right? All right, what's the plan today? We're going to break camp early. Good. We're going to go. We're going to march around the city in complete silence. Awesome. Then what? That's it. That's it. What do you mean? That's it. We're going to go back to camp. Every day you did this. You don't know what's going on. This could go on for a year. We don't, you don't know. You don't know it's six days and then seven days, seven times. You're just, every day you're just getting the orders for the day, right? It tested their faith. And it tested their obedience. Were they going to hang in for the long haul or obey God a little while, get, imp get impatient, and then go out and do what they wanted to do? This is a lesson for all of us. This is a lesson for all of us. I'll tell you something else. The fact that all of these soldiers, and remember now, there's 3 million people in the nation of Israel. So there had to be at least 500,000 soldiers. The fact that half a million soldiers could have remained absolutely silent for seven days was in itself somewhat of a miracle. I can't get you know, a couple dozen people to be quiet before a Bible study oftentimes. Because what, what do we want to do when we get together? What, what do Christians want to do when we get together? We want to do what? Fellowship. 500,000 believers. You don't think they want a fellowship? You don't think they want to talk a little bit? But they didn't say a word. It demonstrates how serious they were about this battle. Look, this wasn't a game to them. There was no joking around. No small talk, and especially there was no trash talking. This was war. And war is serious stuff. And not to obey God in the smallest instruction he had given to them in their mind could have meant their life. And it wouldn't have just meant their life because if the enemy wiped out the soldiers, they would have gone then to the camp of Israel and wiped out the women and children too. There's a lot riding on their obedience here. There was a lot going on here, guys. This was serious stuff. And they wanted to make sure they obeyed God to the letter because an awful lot was hanging in the, in the balance. Unlike a lot of Christians today who are the soldiers of Jesus Christ and who don't take the warfare seriously. There's a lot of Christians, a lot of people in the church who look at Christianity as a playground, not a battleground. It's all about having fun. It's all about, you know, fellowshipping and, 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 and all kinds of... And it's not wrong to do that because we come together uh, away from the battle every week to gather together as God's, we need to be refreshed, right? We need to laugh a little bit. But when we leave this place and go back out into the battle, that's serious stuff. We should never take it lightly because the devil's not. He is our enemy. And there's a lot more at stake than just our walk or our life. If we as parents or leaders in the church drop our guard and don't guard against the enemy, he's going to come in and he's going to try to take our families as well or our church families. So this is important stuff. These people were quiet because they knew this was war. But furthermore, 
again, I'm trying to think about, put myself in the situation, right? Um, here's the enemy. Day one, 500,000 soldiers start marching around the city. Oh, they're terrified. They're looking over the walls. Uh-oh, this is it, right? They watch them march around in silence. Priests blowing the trumpets. They finish marching around the city, and they're off there going into the distance. Now, what was that about? That was weird. What, what happened there? Second day, breaking the day. Here they come again. Here they come. March around the city in quiet silence. Priests blowing the trumpets. Oh, this is it. This has got to be it now. First day, they were just scoping us out. This is it. Finish march around the city. There they go back to camp. Third day, same thing. I'm thinking. Me, I'm thinking. Fourth day, fifth day. Now the enemy is looking down over the wall, mocking the people of God. Laughing at, you guys look stupid down there. Marching around. What do you think? We left the door open or something? Why are you marching around the city? What do you think's going on here? They're taunting, right? They're from the walls, I'm convinced. It must have been very humiliating for the armies of Israel to just quietly take these taunts, right? I mean, they were soldiers. Soldiers want to get to it. Soldiers are not procrastinators. Soldiers want to draw the sword. Let's go. Let's get this battle over with. But God purposely made them march around the city once every day for six days and then the seventh day seven times. Why did God make them march in silence in the presence of their enemies? I think, first of all, it caused them to understand the strength of the enemy. I think God wanted them to march around that city to look at those walls, to understand there was no way they were going to get through those walls and defeat this enemy. It was something God was going to have to do. The same lesson he basically taught them at the Jordan River, right? Remember we talked about that? How God led them to the banks of the Jordan River in the spring at flood stage when the snows were melting on top of Mount Hermon and water was rushing through the Jordan Valley. In the summertime, the Jordan River is about 20 yards wide, four to five, six feet deep. No problem crossing it. At flood stage in the spring, it could be as much as a mile wide. and It was a raging whitewater rapid. No way they were going to get across that thing with their livestock and their little ones especially. And God made them camp there for three days looking at the Jordan River to, to let it sink in real good that there's no way they were getting across that through their human ability or ingenuity. They needed God's power. They needed God's power to enter into the land of Canaan. This is we need God's power to enter into the life of the Spirit. This is what Canaan represents. But that's not the end of it, guys. That's only the beginning. They needed the power of God to walk in the Spirit every day, just like we do. The same faith that brought them in was the same faith that they were going to need to sustain them every day. And that's the lesson I think God is trying to teach them. I think once again, and these lessons that God teaches us are not one-time deals and that he's done. He keeps teaching us the same lessons because we forget, don't we? He often just keeps repeating these lessons. And that's why I believe God often delays in giving us victory over the Jerichos in our lives. To teach us that the battle belongs to him, and when we know we are weak, then we are really strong. Because I'm not depending on my strength, but on his. Now, we're just about done. Let me just say this, one other thing. This silence intrigues me, okay? It really does. You know, there's something essential about silence in the process of victory. Because silence causes us to focus on God as we meditate on his promises and power in the face of whatever challenge or crisis we face. Luis Palau, the Argentinian evangelist, writes, and I quote, What a rare commodity. How difficult this is to achieve. 
If we're not speaking verbally, then there are a thousand mental voices inside our thoughts, each vying for the last word. Listen to God. How can he possibly get a word in edgewise? This passage seems to be saying, hush, don't talk so much. Be quiet before the Lord. After you poured out your heart to him, let God speak, end quote. I'm convinced that silence teaches us to focus our attention on God and forces us to listen more closely for his voice in a world that's inundated with noise. Don't we live in a very noisy world? I mean, it's been noisy for a while, but now it's even more so because, you know, you walk outside and go to the store, everyone's got earphones in their ears. I mean, everyone's tuned out of society and is basically just in their own world, right? I mean, the kids especially are constantly listening to music, People have trouble with silence nowadays. It makes them uncomfortable, uneasy. Uh, even when they're alone in the house, they have the radio going all the time or the TV on. I've heard people say, I can't sleep and I listen the TV's going. We have gotten so far away from silence. And I think that's why we have paid the price as well. Because in the old days, and I'm not talking about in Paul the Apostle's day even, or, or even way back uh, in uh, Joshua's day, but even just, you know, a hundred or so years ago, I... I Love the, um, the account of David Brainerd's life, who was a, uh, a 17th century American missionary who rode thousands of miles in the course of his life on horseback, uh, reaching Native Americans with the gospel. And he would often ride days or weeks to find the next town or village of Native Americans. He had all that time to pray, to meditate, to talk with God. And I'll tell you, these people were giants of the faith. Because they gave God time to speak. They had a dialogue going. They, they had a relationship with God, unlike us so often. But David Brainerd writes, and I quote, In the silences, I make in the midst of the turmoil of life an appointment with God. From these silences, I come forth with spirit refreshed and with a renewed sense of power. I hear a voice in the silences and become increasingly aware that it is the voice of God. Oh, how comforting is this little glimpse of God, end quote. I can't tell you how important it is that we tune out the noise from time to time and just spend time with God. You know, Chuck Swindoll asks the question, what does silence create? Then he answers his own question by saying, it makes room for listening. It gives us freedom to observe. It allows time to think. It provides space in which to feel. It lets us broaden our awareness. It opens us to the entry of peace. It invites us to know our limitations and God's vastness, end quote. And that's why God said in Psalm 46, verse 10, Be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. And in Isaiah 30, verse 15, the Lord said, In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Again, we so often let the noise of our life drown out the voice of God. And I think that if you're going to be victorious, you have to be connected with God. If you're going to really overcome the strongholds in your life, let me just say this. Only God is going to do it, and if you're not connected to God, it's not going to happen. Prayer and just simply getting away somewhere so that God can commune with you is one of the most important things you can do, and yet it's a discipline that many Christians today have lost sight of. Because, you know, in those days, they, they walked, they rode horses, they had time to think. What do we do? 
We want to go somewhere. We jump in the car. We turn on the radio. It's always noise. I'm finding myself driving more and more with total silence now. Just thinking on the Lord. Just bringing my heart to the Lord. Just bringing issues to Him that are troubling me. Burdens and so on. Just wanting to bring them to Him. And if He's got something He wants to speak to my heart about, I want to hear it. So, two important principles. The strategy that God gave to them, which of course falls into the category of the foolishness of God. And again, it's not the strategy, guys. Don't focus on that. The issue was God wanted to produce in them humility and faith, just like he wants to produce in us. And then the silence, which always should precede the battle. Somebody has said, the man or woman who kneels before God can stand up to any man. Before the fight has to come the surrender. Will you surrender your life to him, listen to his voice, seek him for guidance. Then you get up from his presence and then you go fight the battles and God will be with you and he'll give you victory. So may God give us grace to continue learning these principles and by his grace apply them into our lives. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for putting in these stories principles that we can glean by which to live our Christian lives. Father, forgive us for thinking we're so smart because we have much experience in ministry or some degree from some seminary that we are now more qualified than anyone to do your work. And those things are not evil. I'm not putting those down. But Lord, if we look to those things to be, well, to be the essential thing that we need before we can really do your work, we're missing the point. Because Lord, you'll often lead us to do foolish things just to show us you don't need us. And no flesh will glory in your presence. So Lord, give us grace. And then Lord, we pray that as we seek you for guidance, that we will spend some time just silently before you, that you might give us any final instructions, any words of encouragement, any words of correction before we stand up and move into the battle. We just thank you, Lord. Give us grace to apply these into our lives. And Lord, be with us next week as we look at the third and final key to the victory of Jericho. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.